Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis. I'm on today with Peter Courtney and Josh Ellinger from the company Exemplar. So, Josh, Peter, would you like to introduce yourselves? Uh, certainly. So it's actually Exemplar Technologies. The Exemplar is an electronics firm out of uh, of California. They've got they've got the the short name. Uh, I'm Joshua Ellinger. I'm the founder of the company and been doing this for twenty something years. I'm an electrical engineer slash statistician by training and mainly a programmer, and, and I build things. Um, Peter. Yeah, I'm Peter Courtney. I've worked with um, with Josh for quite a long time with Exemplar Technologies, and I uh, do primarily analytics and uh, sort of customer support and stuff for Exemplar Technologies. Cool. So what value does Exemplar Technologies bring to its clients? So what we do is we do um, a measurement that we call treated versus control, where we try to give you an idea of how effective your marketing really is. We take um, anything that you've got a, a, a kind of a directed marketing feed on, say, uh, direct mail or um, email or any other media like that. Um, we separate out a control every time you send a campaign. So you, you do all your work, you do all your targeting, and then we hold off maybe 10% of that. And you run the campaign we look at the results and we compare the results of the 90% that got the the marketing piece to the 10% that didn't. And from that, we can tell you how much you're costing to get an incremental event and how effective your marketing really is. Yeah, I think just from a business perspective, I think whenever you're doing anything, spending any money in a business, you'd like to be able to have a way of determining what the impact to your business that is, that that causes. And um that's the point of incremental measurement, like in terms of treaty versus control, is to identify the true benefit to the company of the dollar spent. Okay. So from a high level, the business problem you're solving is attribution. Uh, what are some of the other um, options that a business has for measuring testing versus control methodology different? Like I was saying before with the business problem of trying to identify the value to the company um, no matter what type of methodology you're using, you really want to understand what proportion of what your of the um, events that are driven to your company are truly driven by your, in the case of marketing, your marketing efforts. Um, there are a handful of different ways that you can measure that, and there's some jargon around that. Um, some of the traditional ways to do that are with a uh, media mix model, with this, which is an econometric approach, where you take the spend across different media channels across time and you run a regression to be able to try to differentiate what the impact of those different changes in spend are on um, on your sales events or whatever event you're trying to measure. Um, the, the issue with that approach, there's not really a primary issue, but the issue with that approach is that it has uh, a pretty large assumption, which is that the, um, the, the spend, the change in spend is going to lead linearly to a change in behavior in a measurable and predictable way, which isn't always the case. Um, with treated versus control, we have sort of less uh, less assumptions. We take the we only really assume that the difference in the treated and the control group's behavior is due to the marketing, and we do that by making sure that we um, have the two groups are being very representative of each other statistically. Um, 
The other language that's commonly used is attribution. You mentioned that word earlier. That's a little bit of like a loaded term in some ways because the idea of attribution is to be able to say that there's a specific event and we can tell you exactly what drove that event. Um, so there's a handful of ways you might attempt to do that. With treated versus control analysis, we don't always, we don't make the claim that we can say what drove any specific event. We instead say, this is the size of effect that we saw because of the treatment. The, the other thing, of course, that's uh, a little bit dangerous with attribution is that people kind of assume that one of, if you've got five different things that could have caused somebody to buy, it's got to be one of those five. When in often it's um, something you're either not measuring or your brand's just well known enough that they were going to buy anyway. And so you can do attribution where you have this kind of uh, none of the above bucket, but often that's missed. Um, one of the examples I like to use is um, say, say you're selling pizza and uh, these two kids, Bill and Ted, most excellent, walk in the door and offer to uh, distribute a coupon for you for $5 off. Bill, uh, Bill goes and leaflets the neighborhood nearby, which is probably a pretty effective thing to do. But Ted stands ten outside of your front door and hands them out to people as they're walking by. When you look at the redemption rates, it looks like Ted is just blowing it away and doing great. But really, he's costing you a lot of money because he's handing out coupons to people who were going to buy anyway. And so incremental kind of tries to get at that problem, that if you actually had an idea of who was going to buy anyway and you subtract that out, you get at the real effect of the marketing. And one common approach for attribution actually runs into this problem, or at least is set up in a way where it runs into this problem quite commonly, and that's a last touch attribution. The idea behind that is that you kind of you make the base assumption that the only event that influences a customer is the last communication they received. So if they give you a code or a coupon, you assume that the presence of that coupon has 100% responsibility for their purchase event. And that's the base assumption of, of last touch attribution. Okay, so I see how there's some blind spots in the different methods of um, measuring, I guess, media's impact to, um, to business performance. So what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of incremental measurement or testing versus control measurement? You want to start with this, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, if you're thinking about treated versus control measurement specifically, the strength is how few assumptions there are. We're not making any statement about um, like which specific communication caused, a, caused an effect. We're not making any kind of assumption about the amount of money you spent leading to a certain outcome. The only assumption we're making is that the difference between the treated and control cohorts is just the treatment. So if we measure a statistically valid, statistically significant difference in behavior between the treated and control group, we can only attribute that difference to the presence of the marketing marketing itself. Um, so that's very, very few assumptions. There's not a lot of um, extra information that can slip in as long as it's well designed. Um, the drawback is that your answer um, has all of the shortcomings of normal statistical measurement. And a lot of those boil down to 
um, how do you communicate uncertainty to your clients? And I think that that's an ongoing problem across every industry that measures statistics. Um, and the there isn't a great solution for that. Um, typically, what people do is they uh, refer to just the statistical significance of a test. They say, is it statistically significant or not? But there's actually quite a few shortcomings of even that kind of statement. There's a lot of complexities hidden under that simple claim. Um, and a lot of times you don't have uh, you, the person that you're communicating with, communicating results with, doesn't have enough statistical background to understand maybe the nuances uh, underneath that claim. So I think that's one of the primary weaknesses. The the other problem um, or, or weakness, um, we tend to think of it as a strength, is that um, when you're when you're reporting these numbers, typically you're in a scenario where you kind of are reporting on a weekly basis. You do an early read, and as it matures, you t you repeat your your read and your update. If you're used to LTA type numbers, it's always up. So you first week you have ten calls, second week you have thirty. But in a scenario that we're talking about with incremental, the if something happens in the market your your number could go down. In fact, it often does. So like say you've got two marketing pieces that are dropping. One drops week on week zero to week 12, or, I, or I'll say week two, uh, you see this great response curve. And then you put on a second marketing piece out there that starts stealing traffic away from your first. Then you start to see a dip off and a negative incremental for those couple of days, and your number goes down. And that's a really hard concept for decision makers to get comfortable with. And I think that there can just be random variations within any kind of statistical group. So if you do a control group that you select randomly out of the same superset that you select your treated group out of, the idea is that these are from the same statistical distribution. They should behave the same. But the reality is that they are a different list of people that you're communicating with. And so there'll be random variations within there that you can't control for. Let it, if you end up with one person in your control group that just happens to have a crazy high buying behavior, like they buy 30 of the thing that you're selling when most people only buy one, that drives up the behavior rate of your control group. And that's very unlikely to happen at a high rate within your treated group, which means your entire measurement goes down dramatically. You need to put protections in place for that. But um, there's a lot of those types of events that are essentially noise, but they look like that number going up and down, bouncing around, which is something like Josh mentioned, you don't see when you're doing what I call like an accounting metric, like you're counting calls or you're counting people walking through the door. And underneath that, there's actually a subtle problem, or not a, not a problem, but a, the subtle cause of that is that um, you almost always have a lot smaller controls than you do treated. So say you've got a, a market, a potential audience of a million people. Um, if you've got enough budget, you're going to want to touch everybody because that would get you the biggest, in absolute term, responses. And so there's always this little bit of a pressure to... to make keep your control sizes small. And so what happens is that people get accustomed to the statistics and the noise associated with the big group, the treated group, and forget that the smaller holdout group is it's 10 times smaller um, and thus has uh, substantially higher um, noise associated with it. 
So can you walk us through how to validate the statistical significance of testing versus control findings? And what are some ways that a company might make the mistake of having too much noise and not being able to read the results of such a test? So I'll, I'll take the easy way because I, I can give you a, a really easy rule of thumb that, um, that protects you in most circumstances. Make sure that either both populations that you're working with, the treated and the holdout, have at least 20 events in them over the time period and measurement that you're trying to get. At 20 events, any, any combination of things that gets you 20 events usually will get you enough to measure a decent size difference. If you expect your difference to be really small, of course, if you're, if you're changing colors on a website or you're, you don't think your marketing is very effective, you'll need more. But um, anytime you dip below 20, uh, it starts to get a little bit sketchy from a statistical point of view. So, and this is where it sort of starts talk, touching on the more complicated um, aspects of statistical measurement, which is Josh is saying this rule of thumb of 20, because at that number of events, the distribution of events tends to be normal or close to normal, which is one of the fundamental assumptions for most statistical significant tests. Like if someone tells you something is statistically significant, they've run something like a student t-test, which isn't normal, but it's close, or they um, or a z-test. And what the, those types of tests do is they assume a normal distribution or similar to a normal distribution, and then they come up with a value, which they call a p-value, which is basically the probability that you would see um, an outcome given that there was no effect which is kind of a comp like complicated sounding non-intuitive statement because it's like speaking in double negatives. But fundamentally, that's how this kind of statistical measurement works and what people mean when they say statistically significant. They mean low probability that you would get this result given an effect, given no effect. Yeah. The, the other way to think about it is that, that if you have 20 events, you can afford one or two outliers without it really, really changing things, typically. But, um, but when you get down to 10, well, you've got, if one of your holdout is wrong, which will ha really wrong, which will happen 10% of the time, say, um, then all of a sudden it kind of throws off your entire measurement scheme. And these are the same kinds of things that have to be considered when you do any type of A-B test but they become more apparent when you're doing something like treated versus control. When the non-treated group tends to be smaller in exactly. volume and it's a group that you're not marketing to, which I think people have a harder time thinking about, um, they it's it feels different. But this is the same type of statistics that go into an A-B test. Because when you think about it, the, 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 like say, say your A-B test is colors on your website. Uh, you have no reason to think that the red versus blue will generate any different response. And so the underlying assumption of they're going to behave the same is pretty well-founded. But with marketing, the actual general assumption is you're going to get a response. And so you, you actually do have some distance between the treated and control. Uh, the, the treated tends to respond a little bit higher. The control tends to respond a little bit lower. Um, and then you add that to the fact that it tends to be small and you get yourself in a situation where you wind up not being able to measure things because you've got too few holdout responses. 
So one one additional way that some companies like to measure performance is with pre-post readouts. So looking at before a change is implemented and after and trying to measure the difference. So can you explain why that is not as accurate of a measurement for um, the effect size of, of a given test than uh, testing versus control? Well, pre-post pre analysis is a form of treated versus control analysis in which your control group, instead of being a different group of individuals, is just a different time frame for the same group of individuals. So instead of saying you have a million people you could have marketed to and you market to 900,000 and you leave out 100,000 and you measure the difference between those two groups, you have a million people you could market to on January 1st, you send marketing to them, and then you look at their behavior from the second half of December versus the first half of January, knowing that that's when the marketing went into in 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 home, and you then make the assumption that the difference in behavior is due to that due to that marketing event. The main problem with it is that the assumption it has one extra assumption in it. The assumption is that the seasonality of the sales events is not large enough or can be controlled for in a way that it will not completely skew your results. The example I gave with January 1st was kind of purposeful. A lot of products, they sell around the holidays or leading up to the holidays at high rates. So if you were to use your pre-period as the second half of December and your post-period as the first half of January, you would expect to do very poorly in a pre-post analysis um, because the buy rates of many, many products is are much higher in the second half of December than in the first half of January. That being said, you can make adjustments for that with adjusting by adjusting for seasonality. However, those are new assumptions you have to introduce into your measurement, whereas you don't have to do something like that with um, treated versus control as we typically measure it. I do think that both of, both of those approaches can actually be used in unison. There's nothing about treated versus control analysis that precludes your ability to also do pre-post analysis. And pre-post pre is great for things like when you're launching a brand new product or you don't have a lot of competing media spend. Um, where, where it really falls apart is when you've got like these ongoing campaigns or you've got a whole bunch of, you're advertising on a whole bunch of different channels because all of those things kind of come in as noise that, that a treated versus control scenario controls for, but a pre-post tends not to. Yeah, if you're like a large brand and you have a big TV push going on right before your, let's say, direct mail campaign goes out, that would skew your pre-post analysis, whereas it wouldn't skew your treated versus control because your non-treated cohort in a treated versus control analysis also received that TV, that TV advertisement the same time as your treated cohort did. So just for clarification, what's the difference between treated versus control and in and a regular A-B test? So uh, a treated versus, so the, a regular A-B test is something like colors on a website or, or a change in marketing message. Um, and in both cases, the population, one population receives one marketing piece, which is the A group, uh, often the business as usual group, and another one uh, sees the challenge or the new thing you want to try, the B group. So the only difference fundamentally is that the B group receives nothing. So you just don't market to them and everything else kind of falls out of that. In practice, the other big difference, of course, is that that 
you the B group tends to be a lot smaller, and so you have to take that into consideration kind of operationally. But mathematically, the only difference is, is it's an A-B test where A is you get the marketing piece, B is you don't. Yeah, and so the, I think one of the differences is also what you can do with your takeaways. So in an A-B test, if A outperforms B by like five basis points, what you're saying in that, in that case is that A actually generates five basis points of lift over B, meaning over doing, let's say, your BAU approach. It doesn't tell you what your absolute benefit to the company is. It doesn't say it's five basis points of incrementality, right? So an A-B test doesn't answer the incrementality question. It answers incrementality of a test over a hero. And that's actually touches on some of the language that's used in this space, which can collide with each other. We use treated versus control when we're talking about it. And what we mean is treated versus we sometimes refer to as a holdout or a non-treated control. You might hear people use test and control for an A-B test. When they say control, they mean their BAU hero version. And the test is a creative test. The language I, like, I prefer for an A-B test is like test and hero. Um, where you have your hero version, which is your long-standing version of your marketing campaign, and then you have your tests, which is an iteration of that. Yeah, I've heard champion challenger. Uh, yep. On this well. So, in what areas of a can a business employ testing versus control measurement? So the basically anywhere where you've got your marketing to specific people, and so you have the basically when you're in control of who sees the advertisement, um, then, you can, then you can easily do it. Uh, even if you're kind of operating at a higher level where you're marketing at, say, a zip code level because you're doing something like a shared mail uh, or saturation type approach, there you couldn't do it at an, at an individual level, but you, of course, could say, I'm going to market these zip codes and not these. So your fundamental thing you need is you need the ability to hold out of control. Um, I have seen that people do this in the digital space by running dummy ads. So there you basically build two marketing campaigns. And if you're selling ice cream for the control, you put up the ad, an ad for the chair, a charity. And um, the problem with this, of course, is you have to pay for both ad spends. You have to pay for the impressions for the control. So it makes it a little more expensive, but it accomplishes the same purpose because nobody's going to go buy your ice cream if you're sending them as a result of sending a message to a charity. And so you could kind of sort out the two effects. I think another way of stating sort of the fundamental requirement for being able to do a tree versus control analysis is you have to have, have a method of consistently messaging a population. So that's where you actually have it. Like you could talk about zip codes that way. You can talk about a list of names and addresses that way. We, in the digital space, you run into some problems because it is more difficult to consistently refer to the same exact population. A lot of times um, there's some shift over time where your ability to fingerprint and ID individuals can become difficult. You don't always have the way of saying like, at the beginning of the month, I was targeting these 1 million devices and I'm still targeting those same 1 million devices at the end of the month. If I'm remembering correctly, Facebook has an, a feature where they can run in testing versus control for you because they have that personal level of data, but they don't make that targeting available to clients to kind of do it themselves. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Any social media platform can do it themselves within their own environment. And if they give you access to it, you could theoretically do it through them. But otherwise, you're under the same issues. Conversely, what are some other areas of the business where you can't run an incrementality test? So the biggest obvious one, of course, is television, because uh, television's bought on these markets and it's bought on Media Week. And so you don't have a you, so you can't run trust. Uh, you can't run a control with any fine grain on uh, on TV. Um, instead, with TV, you have to resort to either the media mix type uh, models, which really are, have the same mathematical foundation as a as a pre post test, where you're looking at at different the behavior uh, at different time periods, uh, or you have to result to a resort to a pairing type approach where you say these two markets are similar. So I'm going to market to one and not the other. But of course you're making an assumption that they, you have to go through all the work and, and make the assumption that these two really are equivalent markets that Austin is, behaves the same as Portland, which uh, used to be true. And, and that these days doesn't hold very well. On that note, can you walk through how a business would kind of compare two groups to make sure that they are behaviorally similar? So there's there's several ways to do it. I'm trying to think of what well, do you want to start with the, the only guaranteed way to do it and it's not even fully guaranteed is with a random sampling. There are other methods to attempt to do it with non-random samples, which I think is what Josh you're about to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. It's actually I guess it goes back to an important point about what we do, which is the 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 key thing that we've we've actually had some very funny uh, conversation with people people inside of the organizations we work with. What they want to do is they want to kind of make sure that if you're running five campaigns, that each campaign has a distinct control that doesn't overlap. And that's actually the wrong thing to do. What you really want to do is you need to make sure that that each, you roll the dice for each one individually. So there is some overlap in the control, but they're statistically independent, they're random. And what that does is that means that um, all of the the couple hundred years of, of mathematical statistics, all that work comes into play and, and works cleanly because there's no hidden correlations, there's no no weird side effects. Uh, you're just dealing with the the noise of normal natural processes. Um, in terms of telling if two areas are similar, um, really what you need to do is you need to find a couple of auxiliary dimensions that you know matter to your product. So uh, a case that I'm kind of familiar with would be if you're, um, say, selling something where to consume the product, you would have much better experience if you had a high bandwidth internet connection. Uh, you would take the two things that you are kind of asserting are similar, and you see you take the not the variable you're interested in, which is how much they buy, but one of these auxiliary variables, uh, income, age, demographics, uh, in this case, uh, bandwidth, and you see if those distribute the same. And what it really should be is uh, you shouldn't be able to tell anything, predict anything from a behavioral point of view uh, between the two groups based on any of these auxiliary variables. Um, that's yeah, the, best the way I like to think about it is you can, if you are given an individual from either the treat or control group, you would not be able to, and you were asked the question, were, was this person from treated or was the, or were they from control? And you have both the treated and control cohort 
at hand to study that you would have no way of of telling which group they're from. You could say they had an equal probability of having been from either group. If, for instance, your holdout is skewed, let's say that they actually hold like you somebody when they were processing the treated and control cohorts, they actually scrubbed people over the age of 65 out of the treated cohort, but not out of the control, right, for some reason. And so and then the person you received was under the age of 65. So they could be in either list, but they have a higher probability of being in the treated list because there's there is some group within the non-treated list that is over the age of 65, let's say. So now, even though it's a small change in probability, we can still tell we're, we can still make a statement that they have a higher, a slightly higher probability of being the treated group. That means that these groups are not representative. That's one way of sort of testing it. And the way Josh was mentioning with these sort of ancillary dimensions, you can just think of it like independent of, let's say you have a national list, even the first digit of their zip code, which is, there's 10 possible values, right? The first digit of the zip code, if you drew a histogram of the populations, like the density of that, of that value across the treated and control group, and you overlay the two, they should have very little distance between them. They should look basically identical unless your control is way too small. So it's not, so it has a lot of a sort of variance built in or something broke in the process and introduced bias. Yeah, and in, pra in practice, because we deal a lot with direct mail, um, the that last digit of the zip code or first digit of the zip code, uh, I, I prefer last, uh, works quite well. Okay, that makes sense. So basically picking some kinds of variables and then comparing the you know, the variance uh, or, or the spread of how those um, variables change between the treated and control. And ideally, they kind of fall in a similar pattern for both populations. Yeah, it should be basically the same pattern. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're dealing with a decent number of records, like I mean, any 100,000 records, those, those type numbers, they will, they will look like they're right on top of each other. Uh, if they don't, there's something wrong. Can we talk about the history of measuring business performance? When when did incremental or testing versus control come to prominence? Uh, is, is it prominent? <laughs> I, would, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's 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 got some presence, um, but it's. Uh, let me think back. So, I can tell our story about it, which I know, which I know better than than the general history. Um, we were working with a company that had a problem, which was that their uh, people who bought in response to their direct mail um, tended to buy at retail stores, but they had no way to measure that. And so, in other words, they didn't take the mail piece with a, spe uh, a special code on it and call the call center, or they didn't take the mail piece into the retail store and say, hey, I'm getting this special offer, scan this code. So we got we got kind of roped in or, or evolved into doing incremental measure, trying to solve that problem. And we got it. What happened is that we figured out that you can't, of course, just look at everybody who walks in the door because this is a big national brand. And a lot of people buy would buy without any advertising or buy as a result of the TV ads. Um, but if you held out a control and you separated these two out. And then you looked at it, you matched them back. Everybody who came in to the 
to and bought anything over like a 45 day window for direct mail, you would see these really nice looking curves, particularly if you added up three or four campaigns together and you just see the impact of the, of the mail that the group who, who got the mail would uh, come in a lot higher frequencies than the people who didn't. Um, so I think that's the heart of it. We, I think we've been doing this for when we've, we really the incremental story got big about ten years ago, right? When when the when the greenfield for our, our client went away, and they had to start. Um, there there was one point, and maybe a lot of industries go through this. There's a uh, when you're starting out, it's easy because what you're trying to do is get people to know about your product. Your brand's not well known, and so almost all the activity that you do get on a directed last touch basis. Is in fact incremental because it's people. You're if you're a tiny company, the challenge is getting people to know you exist. Um, but then as you grow and get bigger, that tends to kind of slow down, and then finally you get to these saturation points where you don't know. You don't know if it's the marketing's doing any good, and you've got and you're advertising on every single channel in existence. Um, and the other thing that tends to happen at that point is that. You go from a scenario in which you're doing a land grab and you just want to market to everybody you can afford and, and, and get as many customers as you can to where you have to be a little more strategic and start optimizing. Um, and then that's the point where the incremental story comes in because then you're tr trying to choose. You don't have limited budgets. You're trying to choose based on how profitable my customer is, how much am I willing to spend to acquire them. And so as a result, you need an incremental type measurement to do that. I also think um, to the question of how old is this type of measurement, right? How long has it been around in businesses? In a lot of ways, and we talked about this a little earlier, this is just a version of A-B testing in some ways. And A-B testing is probably the oldest type of business optimization measurement, right? Where you have, as soon as someone wanted to, when they say they're data-driven, what they usually mean, and this has been what they meant for decades and decades, is that when they make a change to their messaging or make a change in their business, they measure the change versus not the change. And they make sure that the change is worth it. Um, the difference with a treated versus control measurement in the way that we do it is first that we have no, we have a non-treated group. So we're trying to measure the overall effect of this specific marketing, like the specific effort and that we do this, we recommend doing this on as many, if not all of your campaigns, as many of the campaigns as possible, if not all of your campaigns. I'm What I'm guessing is, is that in a lot of industries, in a lot of companies, they occasionally will do some type of test like this. They'll do some type of pre-post analysis. They'll do some type of occasional pullout of a group that is represented that they don't, they don't market to. I know that some groups do what's called a persistent control where they will um, pull out a group that they never market to, um, and they'll use that to answer similar types of questions. Um, so that's definitely been that's definitely done. But in respect to it being a type of A/B testing, I think that it's not really novel in that respect. Oh yeah, actually, I went uh, I went to Wikipedia to check it out, and uh, uh, Wikipedia credits a guy named Claude Hopkins who worked for uh, Ogilvy. David Ogilvy, not really a surprise, uh, around the turn of the century, of last century, so 19, 1907, around that time, who applied 
methods that were invented the previous century for medicine, the, basically the classical uh, test in medicine for does, does this medicine really work, he took that and applied it to advertising. So it's been around as long as mass market advertising really has been. Um, his and a lot of the literature around this comes out of medical science and stuff, um, yeah. which is why I don't know if you if if you listen long enough to Josh in meetings, he'll bring up medical testing at least a couple times when yeah, he's talking about AV groups. The uh, yeah, in fact, the book they the book they reference is the Scientific Advertising, published in 1923, which I have not read. Cool to know there's uh, historical roots here. So what is what is the future of testing versus control measurement? Where do you see this uh, form of business measurement uh, going next? So are are you asking from a point of view of kind of how how it evolves in the the business space or how it evolves kind of in the technical statistical side of things or, or both? Well, Peter, why don't you start with uh, pick one of those and start? Yeah, yeah. So. So this thing, we're talking just now about how old some of these techniques are and so how they're sort of the core of statistical, just statistics, right? This idea of trying to understand differences in behavior between two populations. Um, however, that isn't to say that statistics is like a all figured out field, right? It's actually super vibrant right now. There's a huge like sort of renaissance in statistics over the last like decade, let's say. And it's centered largely around uh, machine learning and statistical learning. Um, a lot of there's a the real benefit to sort of businesses with in marketing specifically of all this new study that's going into this, all these people getting into these fields, is that they're developing new techniques to help with visualization, to help describe statistics or descriptive statistics, and um, sort of new techniques that they, you can introduce at different stages of your process. So I think that there are a lot of places we can go beyond just treating it like an A-B test. And this actually, the, most of these things can actually use, be used to improve how we communicate A-B tests as well. One of the assumptions that's built in, one of the strengths I was talking about earlier with treated versus control analysis is how few assumptions there are. Um, that can also, I guess, be interpreted as a weakness for established companies because, in some ways, right, because in reality, there are companies that have been doing marketing for 50 years, right? So when you assume, when you make zero assumptions and you do a test this year and you pretend like you've never done a test before, um, you say, here's our treated group, here's our control group, let's just read the raw outcome of the behaviors in there. That is forgetting the fact that we have a lot of experience. Now, that experience can be introduced back into your problem to help you understand it with um, a lot of sort of Bayesian techniques where you can introduce priors. So the way I the directions I see this going in the future is introducing other techniques such as in, in, introducing priors into your how you can both understand what you're reading and how you can communicate that to stakeholders. And then looking at ways that we can implement a lot of this new research in statistical learning specifically into how we communicate. So yeah, yeah, the thing that's really happened in the last 20 years is that the, the basic, there's kind of two camps in the statistical world, the frequentist and the Bayesian side. And as computers got faster and more powerful, the 
the payoff for doing Bayesian type work and, and the Bayesian approach just gets better and better. And so, uh, I mean, I've seen it in my own business. The first computers I bought uh, were able to solve the problems I was interested in, but they had to have these big relational databases and they were slow. And, and um, even in the last decade, every time I upgrade the machines I use, I, I don't use the cloud, I use my own machine. So every two or three years, I get a, a refresh and the, the machines just got so much faster and you can do so much more. Um, so the thing that we see, the thing I see is that we're gonna take, we're right now we're in a scenario where most people doing this type of analysis look at it from a single campaign point of view. Did this campaign behave better? And where we're headed is a world where we have an ongoing estimate. So last, it almost it kind of is a merge between pre-post analysis and uh, what we call creative versus control. So you look at last month's performance and you say, well, hey, if I don't have enough to measure, if I don't have any better idea, I'm gonna assume that this month behaved like last month. But if I see something in the data, that says that something's different, if I see a, a strong enough response, then I'm gonna believe the new response. And the thing that's so valuable about that for a treated versus control type analysis is that our real assumption is not that there's no difference uh, between marketing and not marketing. Our real assumption is that without any other change, marketing should kind of behave the same this month as it did last month uh, or, or last year whatever you choose as your priors. And so that, that dovetails really nicely. Um, I think the other direction this goes is of course, talking to people, how, how you talk to people about this, because the, the thing that drives the business clients crazy when they, when they look at these measurements is that they don't have a really good idea of, is this important or not? Um, and so I think we're gonna get to a world where instead of talking about things like statistical significance and A-B test and P-factors, well, we'll still talk about A-B test, but P-factors, confidence values, which are all statistical jargon, uh, we will do the, the smart thing. And instead of talking these words, we'll actually just show people pictures. And we'll use the fact that you can run these simulations on computers and you could say, we simulated this with random, what, what would be random noise. So if this was random, we'd see it look like this. And look at these two pictures. Here's the separation you've got. And so visually, you actually see what's going on, and it's much more compelling than telling somebody that, that there's a 95% a chance that you got this much left. Um, so I think those are the two big directions. One, the incorporating the Bayesian prior and the Bayesian techniques, and then shifting to more of a visual way of talking about noise so that it's accessible to the business users. I mean, it's even better for a statistical type people too, because you get you get fooled uh, into thinking that you know more than you, do, than you do, and then you plot the two distributions on top of each other and you go, oh, I mean, yeah, there's a little separation, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a lot of money believing that with without uh, testing it some more. Yeah, the point of a p-value is to communicate something about the distribution and the probability of that distribution given certain assumptions, and that's a kind of un, 
counterintuitive type of idea. Plotting the plotting graphs and looking at them is always a lot more intuitive to everybody. The other thing I, th I want to get to is I want to get to a world in which where uh, where um, everybody expects to have kind of three outcomes to anything we do, which is one outcome is is yes this thing we were trying worked and we're happy with it and we're going to move forward with it. One the other outcome of course is uh, no we got so we we it it was so small that. We didn't see anything. It was a big test, uh, and so it, it it's so small. We're not even going to pursue this route. We're done. We're done with it. But the the truth is, is there's a lot of middle in there where it's well, maybe. And what we need to do is we need to get into a, a position of where we say we we hand back the maybes to the business users and say you should run this another month because we don't. If it's not too expensive, you should run it another month and test it again and accumulate that data until you've got some confidence and you can make the right decision. And so it's kind of a yes, no, maybe, or if, if you're a baseball fan, uh, you win, you lose, and it rains type of uh, argument. And I think we can get there without complicating the story for the business users uh, pretty easily if we use that kind of visualization approach that I'm talking about. So on the topic of communicating to the business, what are some of the challenges with selling this new kind of measurement to an organization and how have you been able to circumvent that? The biggest challenge is that the people who are running these advertising campaigns have targets and goals set by their bosses, usually on an annual basis, and they can't go back to their boss mid-year and say, hey, we're going to try something different. Uh, we're gonna, I, I want to change how, how you're measuring me. It feels like you're cheating when you do that because you're you're saying let's change the the game midstream. So the way we've been successful in getting around that is you don't ask to replace the LTA metric or whatever they're used to because uh, they've got comfort and intuition and usually a lot of knowledge built up around it. Instead, you offer the incremental alongside it, and what happens is that as you over time demonstrate that the incremental makes sense to them, the attention gradually shifts towards that. Um, it's hard as a, uh, as, a, as a business proposition because you're basically asking people to pay for two types of measurement. Um, but I think, I think it all works out pretty cleanly. The, the, the extra work kind of pays for itself. And if you do one, like in one case we did recently, we were able to show that that this was the right measurement for this particular product. And the way they'd been doing it in the past was not generating answers that really made sense to them. And all of a sudden, when you see it in an incremental context, you go, oh, well, duh, the, we're measuring on this channel, but everybody's buying on this channel. Of course we weren't seeing it. Um, and then, then the rest of the business goes along. Um, but I do think the challenge is trying to, trying to get people to... to well, actually, I'll hit on the real challenge now that I think about it. The real challenge is that what if you're in an organization where, in fact, you are wasting money and you just don't realize it because you're measuring on a last touch value? So you've got somebody who's been writing, going back to my Bill and, and Ted example with the pizza, you've got somebody who's been writing these checks for years and they're all happy with how Ted's doing 
uh, bringing people into the into the restaurant, you now have to turn around and say them tell them that basically, well, no, you're not really doing as good as you think you are, and Bill is actually your high performer, not Ted. And that's usually a, a in an org in a stable large organization. Usually, that's a hard message to get across. There are places where you pull in kind of either new people or new business challenges that make it a lot easier conversation to have. And so we kind of tend to focus our efforts on, on those people. Yeah, I think people tend to really crave simple answers and most simple answers hide a lot of complexity. Um, so when they're doing things like the TED example or like just counting events in a single channel like call center or doing some kind of last touch measurement, um, it looks like a simple answer. And in isolation, there's a temptation for people to stick with sort of the TED answer of just like, well, if you give them a coupon on their way in the door, you get 100% attribution. Every single dollar you spent drove someone to the door, right? Even though they were all coming in anyways. And that can work in isolation. The problem is, is in any larger company or even medium-sized company, someone else wants your budget. And they're going to be trying to claim that they're the ones driving behavior into the company. Um, and at some point, two, those two groups' reports are going to go up to somebody who sees both of them and does the napkin, back of the napkin math, adds up that company A drew, drove 100, or organization A drove 100% of the sales to the company, and organization B also did that. And so that's 200% of all the sales the company has. What's going on here? And they're going to want to see something real. They're going to want to be able to have a real way of answering the question. What is the relative benefit to the company of what each of these organizations is doing? So someone has to pay the piper eventually. So complexity can't always be ignored by simple answers. Makes sense. So I, I guess one one thing I wanted to talk about, which we probably should have done earlier, is just kind of from a layman's perspective, what what does incrementality mean? And I think I have a pretty good statement, but I so let me say it and then you guys can correct me. Um, measuring incrementality is measuring how much activity is truly driven by the media you're putting into market that you're testing and not and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so by measuring with a control group, you're measuring what would have happened if I hadn't spent this money, put this media into market, and then you're measuring you know, the additional impact that that media had. Is that a good summary of incremental measurement? And how would you add to that? I, w I would add a couple of things. So I think, I think of incremental as an umbrella term that encompasses pre-post type analysis, treated versus control, which is what we specialize in, uh, and also media, media mix models for that matter. Uh, it can even be a part of a, of a multi-touch attribution scheme if there's a nobody did it bucket, uh, a, a um, other bucket. So at a high level, the incremental is how much, how much impact did this piece of marketing have on the business? But uh, and, and then at a lower level, you've got these two or three different ways you could try and get at that, um, and of which we favor the treated versus control 
because it doesn't have the seasonality um, or or that class of problem associated with it. You're immune to price changes, things like that. Yeah, Ox, I think the way you stated it is very like succinctly what it is, right? Um, the value to the business driven by the marketing that wouldn't have happened any otherwise. And that is what, to Josh's point, all of those methods are trying to tell you. We would just argue that treated versus control requires the least number of assumptions to in an attempt to answer that question. And there are other benefits as well. One that we didn't touch on before is the fact that you can actually, by putting this into a database, basically, you can then aggregate your results over time and come up with additional insights. Um, since you're measuring each campaign kind of in isolation, you can also then aggregate it. Good, that makes a lot of sense. So right now, would you say that the industry and the different measurement types are almost jousting for a stronger position as the truth for business performance? I think it's a little bit tough because there are, as, as one of your questions earlier sort of illuminated, there is, there's a limit. There are some types of media and communications that you can't measure. You don't have the opportunity to measure in a treated versus control environment. And you still need a way of trying to state what their benefit is. Um, so it depends a lot on what your business question is. If you're working within a specific channel that has control, has the ability to like to sustainably and repeatedly define a population so that you have the ability to create treated and control groups, then treated versus control is sort of like a gold standard. It's the, it's the best way of identifying the true value to the business given versus what would have happened otherwise. If instead you're trying to balance out like, well, what's the effect of this market, this media versus another media that we don't have the opportunity to measure this way, you can come up with answers with something like a media mix model. Um, the problem with that is, is that media mix model is not going to do as good of a job of telling you the true answer for that channel that you that you could have measured with treated versus control. But it will give you an idea of the relative value between that media and a media you can't measure with with treated versus control. So I don't think that if you're a large enough, enough company, you are going to rightfully have several different ways of measuring incrementality. And depending on the business question you're trying to answer, you're going to use the best tool you have. The, the way I like to think about it is that your media channel and your consumer behavior drives your measurement choices much more than the measurement choices driving the, uh, driving the story. Because if you're, in a, if you're in a simple world where you're selling one product and you're brand new, then last touch often works quite well because they don't buy if you don't touch them. Um, as you grow up and grow bigger, though, that story has less and less power uh, as your consumers start buying across multiple channels, some at retail stores, some at a call center, some online. Then you start to need techniques like the our treated versus control. Uh, and then finally, when you're when you're wealthy and can afford television and and that matters to you, you kind of have to have a media mix type econometrics model in, in the story because you're doing mass media spend and you don't have another way that we're really measure it. 
So I, th I start with the media channel and the problem you're trying to solve and then pick the measurement technique that gives you the most information, lets you make the decisions the quick quickest and lets you kind of deliver the most value to the business. Because fundamentally, I mean, when you get down to it, the purpose of all this stuff is to um, generate enough return that, that your business grows and prospers um, rather than just spend money and get, and get it out the door because you, because that's your job. Yeah. Kind of the dream is you might, a lot of times MTA companies that sell MTA models uh, will sort of sell this kind of dream of saying every single channel can be measured by one model. You can take your mass media, you can take your digital, you can take your directed and you can put it all into one model and you can get, understand exactly where all of your sales are coming from. And those models are kind of in general born out of the digital space. And so they've, they're attempting to implement, to sort of bring on board the other media channels into this into this measurement system that's online. Um, I think that the thing people often miss about MTA models is that doing that is very hard. And I mean that like in a strict sense, it's hard. Like there's a lot of math that goes into it. To be able to pull that off correctly is probably nearly intractable for most companies. Um, and I don't know who the right stakeholder to own that is in a lot of cases. Um, but theoretically, that could be done. That's like the holy grail of incremental measurement is to be able to implement, take into account the weaknesses and strengths of every single media's measurability and combine that all together with good priors and read out a true understanding of the influence, Every uh, being able to attribute proportionately every single sale event to to a mixture of media is saying it's this person was influenced 10% by digital 26% by tv 36% by direct mail and the rest was just general word of mouth and brand awareness that was sort of out in the market that's kind of the holy grail but that is a very hard problem that i don't think anyone has very well solved I think that's a good note to end on. I want to thank you, Josh and Peter, for hopping on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.